well-regulated militia be necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, and I am so glad that you're with us on the program. Hopefully, you had a good weekend. You got cold here in Central Virginia. Yeah, it was like 70s all weekend. Wake up this morning, it's cold and raining. It's supposed to get below freezing tomorrow night. Thought it was kind of done with the uh, sweater weather, but yeah, whatever. You know, one thing we are never done with: dumb takes on our right to keep and bear arms. Yeah, there's no shortage of um, absurd and idiotic opinions going after our ability to protect ourselves in the name of public safety. And one of the latest examples of this from the Houston Chronicle. Their new editorial, as gun deaths surge, it's time to say enough to Second Amendment absolutism. First of all, I didn't realize that we had Second Amendment absolutism in this country. I live in a state where I'm required to get a government-issued permission slip before I can uh, lawfully carry a concealed firearm. Uh, If I want to openly carry, by the way, I don't need that government-issued permission slip. I'm not sure what the difference is, but uh, that's far from Second Amendment absolutism. We have over a 100 laws on the books just in California alone, thousands of gun laws on the books across the country, but oh no, apparently we are... Uh, in the grips of Second Amendment absolutism. And and what is the first example of Second Amendment absolutism that the Houston Chronicle points to? The shooting in a New York City subway. Yeah, also not exactly a bastion of Second Amendment absolutism, New York City, right? Yeah, the paper writes, uh, the same week that a 62-year-old man boarded a subway train in Brooklyn and opened fire on his fellow passengers with a Glock 9mm handgun, Georgia became the 23rd state to allow almost anybody and everybody to walk around with a concealed handgun on their person, no permit required. Texas was the 20th to dispense with permits. It's a trend, actually, it's, uh, Georgia's the uh, 25th state, but, uh, <clears throat> you know. Whatever. The subway shooter, the Chronicle writes, has been walking around with a gun since at least 2011. That's when he purchased his gun legally. Well, hang on now. Hang on now. We do know that he did purchase that gun legally. I'm not aware that this individual actually had a concealed carry license, which, of course, the Houston Chronicle editors believe are entirely appropriate and, in fact, downright necessary to prevent people like the 62-year-old from opening fire on a New York City subway. Even if the 62-year-old did have a valid concealed carry license, it would not have been valid in New York City. Uh, and New York City, of course, issues only a handful of concealed carry licenses. At last report, I think there were something like 28,000 active permits in a city of over 7 million people. Again, I'm trying to figure out where the Second Amendment absolutism comes into play. Well, the Chronicle's editors say uh, millions of his fellow Americans during the past couple of years have been buying guns at an ever-accelerating rate. In March last year, federal background checks reached one million in a week for the first time since the government began tracking them in 1998. The record, they write, was short-lived. During one week this spring, the government conducted 1.2 million background checks. Indeed. Now, again... You know this, and I know this. I don't know if the editors of the Houston Chronicle know this, but I'm going to explain it to them. Not every Knicks check is for a gun sale. Okay? Not every Knicks check translates to the sale of a firearm. Sometimes Knicks checks are performed to check the uh, validity of a concealed carry license. In the state of Illinois, FOID checks, uh, you know, the the, the firearm owner ID card, those are checked on a regular basis, using the NICS system. 
So, no, Nick's numbers are not a perfect proxy for gun sales in this country. It's also not true, despite what the Houston Chronicle says, that uh, gun sales have ever been increasing since 2020. Actually, we've seen a bit of a tapering effect uh, over the last few months. It is true. Gun sales surged in 2020. They were extraordinarily high in uh, 2021 as well, but they do seem to be coming back down to some sort of new normal uh, in 2022. More importantly, the uh, Houston Chronicle writes, people usually die when guns are the weapons of choice, and these days they're dying at accelerating rates. According to data released last year from the FBI, homicides in 2020 were up by a quarter from the year before. Data from a sampling of 37 cities shows that the trend has continued through the first three months of 2022, with about 18% more homicides than in the same period last year. And although the homicide rate is still far lower than in the 1990s, the trend is troubling. More guns equals more gun deaths. Well, that's not actually the trend. I mean, maybe if you look at the last two years, but you don't look at the last two years to determine a trend. Again, we can go back to the 1990s. We can go back even further. We can go back to the 1950s or the 1960s if you want. And you can see a pattern of rising and falling and rising and falling violent crime. Violent crime started increasing around 1964. And it continued to increase. By and large, there was, you know, again, maybe a year where it went down. Maybe a year or two when it went down, but then it would go back up until about 1991. So we had, again, about a 25, 26 year period where violent crime was on the increase. And yes, violent crime rates were much higher in the late 1980s and the early 1990s than they are today, which shouldn't be the case if more guns equals more crime, because we have more guns today. We have millions of more people who are lawfully carrying firearms today than we did back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And yet the violent crime rate was a lot higher back then. So, no, more guns does not equal more crime, because, again, what happened in the early 1990s? Crime rates started to drop and they kept dropping. It wasn't a one or two year blip. They continued to drop. Violent crime rates fell by 50 percent. Between the early 1990s and 2020, 50% decline in violent crime. The homicide rate declined dramatically during that 30-year period as well. So what changed in 2020? Yeah, Americans started buying a lot more guns. But there is little to no evidence that uh, those new gun owners all of a sudden turned to a life of crime in 2020. Instead, again, we saw the closure of court systems. We saw police departments pulled back. We saw police commissioners like Daniel Outlaw in Philadelphia say, listen, don't make low-level arrests. Don't even bother. If you see somebody dealing drugs, don't arrest them. At the same time, there was a study that came out just a couple of months ago specifically looking at Philadelphia, finding that the violent crime rates were highest in and around the open-air drug markets, the places that Daniel Outlaw refused to shut down in the early days of the pandemic. Yeah. But again, you've got these clueless uh, editors at the Houston Chronicle who want to blame it all on legal gun owners. They write, the day before the subway shooting, President Biden announced an executive order designed to regulate the sale of so-called ghost guns. Purchase his kits and assembled at home. Ghost guns lack serial numbers, so it's difficult to track ownership. Easy to purchase and easy to assemble. They're designed to evade what's left of our gun laws and then to elude law enforcement when they're used in a crime. They're proliferating. 
These guns are the weapons of choice for many criminals, Biden said in a Rose Garden ceremony attended by victims and families of gun violence. We're going to do everything we can to deprive them of that choice, and when we find them, put them in jail for a long, long time. Biden's order, the paper writes, mandates background checks on ghost gun purchasers and requires adding serial numbers to the assembled weapons. It's a modest effort to address a real problem, but like Pavlov's canine pal, our own Senator Ted Cruz rose up in hind legs dudgeon. He announced plans to introduce a resolution to block the ghost gun order. Well, again, when the paper calls this a modest step, what they really mean is it's ineffective, but it's gun control, so we like it. There is nothing that Joe Biden announced that is actually going to stop a criminal from illegally obtaining a firearm, whether they build it their own, whether they steal a gun, whether they get it through a, a straw purchase or through a friends or family member, or they buy it on the black market off the street. These rules announced by Joe Biden are designed to go after people who want to remain inside the boundaries of the law, legal law-abiding gun owners, right? And it is an attempt to establish a backdoor gun registration scheme. Uh, if even your home-built firearms are required to now come with a serial number and be uh, uh, registered in some way uh, with the federal government, well, that kind of obliterates the idea of gun owner privacy, does it not? And not only do we have a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, but we do have a Fourth Amendment right that encompasses a right to privacy. Something that the Biden administration and the editors of the Houston Chronicle roundly ignore. Instead, uh, again, the editors of the Houston Chronicle get up on their high horse to try to take aim at Senator Ted Cruz and others for trying to block the implementation of this ghost gun rule with a, a resolution in the Senate. They write, quote, Cruz's second amendment absolutism makes about as much sense as a man stepping into a subway car and opening fire with a Glock. As polls show, most Americans realize that modest gun safety measures have nothing to do with abridging Second Amendment rights. They have to do with pushing back against only in this country gun insanity. Insanity that tolerates gun deaths as mere collateral damage. Only in this country can we rise up and say enough. And this is, uh, you know, another part of the op-ed that just doesn't make any sense to me. Because these quote-unquote modest suggestions that the Houston Chronicle says Americans are all in favor of. By the way, support for new gun control laws declining right now, not growing in poll after poll. We've talked about this for months at Bearing Arms. But again, the idea that, well, look, if we just had these modest gun safety measures in place, then none of this would be happening. Well, that's ridiculous. Again, look at California. They have more than just modest restrictions in place, and yet we've seen plenty of acts of really bad violence in the state of California, including the uh, shooting in Sacramento, in which uh, two individuals, uh, both brothers, have been charged. There are additional suspects that are still outstanding, but the uh, two individuals who are currently facing charges, both felons in possession of firearms, both individuals who have been locked up, and both individuals who were let loose after serving just a small amount of the uh, sentence that they received for previous violent crimes. Which again, gets us back to the idea that this isn't about Second Amendment absolutism. The rise in violent crime is not related to the number of Americans who are embracing their right to keep and bear arms. I believe that the rise in violent crime can be traced directly back to the lack of consequences that we are seeing in many cases for these violent crimes. For instance, in Chicago, the homicide clearance rate right now in Chicago is below 50% meaning that there is a better than one in two chance that somebody who commits a murder gets away with it. 
But the clearance rate for non-fatal shootings, you shoot somebody and they survive, is 1 in 20. That's right. A 5% clearance rate for non-fatal shootings in Chicago. Meaning that 95% of the time that somebody gets shot, nobody gets arrested. What do you think is going to make a bigger impact on violent crime in Chicago? Another federal gun control law? Any federal gun control law that you can think of. A ban on so-called assault weapons. A ban on so-called large capacity magazines. A ban on so-called ghost guns. Universal background checks. Or raising the clearance rate for non-fatal shootings from 5% to 50%. What do you think would have a bigger impact on violent crime? Universal background checks? Well, we know the state of Colorado instituted universal background checks, and violent crime has increased every year since. Bans on, quote-unquote, assault weapons and large-capacity magazines? Well, those came into play in Maryland in 2013 with the passage of the Maryland Firearm Safety Act, and since then, Baltimore, Maryland has not had a single year with fewer than 300 homicides. These aren't modest steps. These are big restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms, and they haven't made anybody any safer. So again, to the editors of the Houston Chronicle, if you really want to save lives, if you really want to see violent crime decline, Encourage people to take their own safety seriously. Encourage people to responsibly exercise their Second Amendment rights. But most importantly, demand that lawmakers and public officials get serious about violent crime. That does mean refunding the police. It means more money for prosecutors. It means more money for public defenders. It means more money for witness protection services. But it also means focusing on actual crimes rather than trying to criminalize our right to keep and bear arms. Doing that takes us further away from the solutions that will make us all safer. All right, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with another op-ed, actually. This one from Jefferson, Indiana, uh, Jeffersonville, Indiana, the Evening News and Tribune. Legal system failed in shooting case. So this was a uh, case... Didn't get the type of headlines that the New York City subway shooting got. But a guy named Chirac Douglas, they say, is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. But if he is convicted in the killings of two people, along with the kidnapping of another person, those in charge of our legal system owe the public an explanation. Douglas is in custody after being shot multiple times by police. They say he's accused of shooting and killing his wife and a bystander at a new Albany, Indiana police uh, gas station, rather, on April the 4th. Douglas then fled the scene, according to police, held a woman hostage after kidnapping her, which led to her being injured, and aggressively drove a vehicle at officers. Now, that was on April the 4th. Douglas was due in court on April the 5th to answer to an alleged probation violation on a drug charge. That hearing, according to the paper, had been delayed multiple times after prosecutors tried to have Douglas jailed for the violation. Interestingly enough, Brad Jacobs, who is the judge on this case, was also Douglas's defense attorney on the initial charge. Yeah, he had also represented Douglas on criminal cases in Floyd County, Indiana. And according to court records, he was asked to send the Clark County case to another court, but it didn't happen, even though there's a clear conflict of interest. State's Code of Judicial Conduct, according to the paper, says that a judge shall disqualify, not may, but shall disqualify himself from proceeding if he, quote, served as a lawyer in the matter in controversy. That's clearly the case. And yet it didn't happen here. 
And so the paper's editors are left to wonder. It's hard to understand, they say, why someone with such a lengthy criminal record, one that includes felony convictions or plea deals for armed robbery, domestic battery, and cocaine possession, will be allowed to stay on the streets for almost a year after an alleged violation. It's even more difficult to comprehend why a judge who had represented the defendant previously would not immediately step down from the case. The situation should be reviewed by the Indiana Supreme Court Qualifications Commission, and the judge should also disqualify himself from any future proceedings involving Chirac Douglas. The paper says jails are overcrowded and courts are often overrun with cases. This creates a backlog that can delay hearings, but judges and prosecutors must prioritize proceedings involving defendants with long criminal records, specifically when those convictions involve violent crimes. For the public to have faith in the justice system, the system must be transparent, fair, and above reproach. And when top legal officials fail to follow the rules, the public's confidence in the system rightfully erodes. Defendants have legal rights and deserve a fair trial. They say treatment and rehabilitation of those who've been convicted of crimes is also important, but our legal system shouldn't ignore red flags. The public must be protected from violent criminals, and this is a clear case where our system failed. Yeah, it would appear so. It would definitely appear so. But again, this is not unusual, even when you don't have the egregious circumstances of a judge who was once the defense attorney representing his client, now refusing to recuse himself from a case. 97% of felony cases in this country are plea bargained down. 97% of felony cases in this country don't go to trial. Right? And so we see, because we have a criminal justice system that is based on the plea bargain, rather than based on a, a, a fair and speedy trial before a jury of your peers, this is why we are able to find these recidivist reports each and every day without any problem whatsoever. It is not a struggle to find these stories. Generally, it is a struggle to figure out which one we're going to be talking about. Because, again, there are uh, egregious examples, like this judge refusing to recuse himself, but the system itself is so reliant on plea bargains that, yeah, you're going to get these types of stories every day of the year. Today's armed citizen story. Now, this is an odd one. And I actually debated about whether or not to include it. I've, I've, I've written a uh, armed citizen story to Philadelphia this morning. We've got another one out of New Orleans that we're going to be talking about at Bearing Arms on the uh, website this afternoon. And I, I, I'm not sure we've got all the details of this one yet, but here you go. Chicago shooting, River North hotel guest exchanges gunfire with would-be robber, police say. So this is an armed citizen story at... A Chicago hotel. Yeah. First one of these that I've run across. I mean, I've seen, you know, uh, Uber drivers and Lyft drivers in Chicago who defended themselves against carjackers. But uh, according to police, a hotel guest, guy who was staying at a hotel called The Godfrey. It was uh, just after 11 p.m. Sunday night. The uh, victim says an unknown person knocked on their door. The 53-year-old victim opened the door, and then a man forced his way into the room, took out a gun, and demanded the victim's property. The suspect then began firing shots at the victim. The victim, who was grazed in the head, returned fire. The would-be robber fled the scene, according to police. The victim, treated the scene by the Chicago Fire Department, refused further medical attention. Police did recover a weapon from the scene. It's not known if it was the suspects or the uh, victims. They say that no one is in custody. Now, it may very well be that this is exactly how it went down. But I have to say, I, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm keeping an open mind here. Uh, because, the th- well, I'll tell you, the thing that really just kind of sticks out at me is the 53-year-old victim said he didn't know his attacker. 
So this guy just randomly knocked on the door of a hotel room, forced his way inside, not knowing who was in there or what they might have to steal, uh, and just happened to pick a guy who had a gun and was able to protect himself. I, I, look, it, it, it could have happened that way. But it could also be that perhaps the assailant was not unknown. <laughs> perhaps the assailant uh, maybe even had been invited to that hotel room and an argument broke out. I don't know. I don't know. But there is something about the way the story has been initially reported that makes me a little hesitant to, to just uh, immediately buy into the narrative. So we're going to keep our eyes on this story. If there are more details uh, as they become available, we'll let you know about them. But I will say, for right now, uh, the hotel guest who defended himself, not arrested, not facing any charges, and, and the story has been reported by the police exactly as I reported it to you. So uh, if there are more details, as I say, we will bring them to your attention. Finally today, our good deed of the day, uh, from Indiana as well, where officers in Indianapolis, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to help a mother and children escape their burning apartment complex. Now, I tried to find a good screen grab of the video, and of course, this is officer body cam, so they're running to the scene. So this is about as uh, clarifying a, an image as I could get. You can see the apartment there uh, is clearly on fire. Uh, emergency calls came in from the Pine Glen Apartments. It was about 3.30 in the morning on April 11th. When uh, Indianapolis Metro Police officers arrived, they were working to get people out of the buildings. They were alerted to a family that was stuck in an apartment that was filled with smoke. Uh, the officers could see the mother holding one of her children out the window. So officers called on her to drop the child. Their arms outstretched. They caught the young child. Then they caught a second child, two and three years old. And then the mom jumped off of the uh, or out the window. Uh, was also caught by the officers. None of the three occupants of that apartment were injured. The fire department said the fire started in an apartment when a 70-year-old man knocked over a candle, which caught a blanket on fire. Firefighters also helped rescue multiple people who were trapped in their apartments. Uh, there were uh, four units damaged in the fire, but again, thankfully, there were no injuries because of the quick thinking and the fast action of those Indiana, excuse me, uh, Indianapolis Metro police officers and the uh, fire crews who arrived on scene as well. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you, as always, for being a part of the program. And uh, you know what? I'm going to thank you for being a part of my life as well, because honestly, your kind words have continued to mean a lot to me, uh, and I really do appreciate it. So looking forward to being back with you tomorrow with even more Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. In the meantime, don't forget to check out BearingArms.com throughout the day for even more of the latest Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about. And of course, if you like what you see, you can always become a VIP subscriber. Just go to BarryandArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you're going to get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As our way of saying thanks, we're going to give you exclusive analysis, content, news stories you won't find anywhere else, because your support really does make a difference. We'll be back tomorrow, but until then, be well, be safe. I say I was going to try to time this out just so I could get that last word right at the end of the music, but I think I messed up. So be well, be safe, and be free.